Welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. This is episode 22 for July 23rd, 2019. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. If you were here, you've probably been here before. That's my guess because we had a big spike in listenership a couple of episodes ago for my documentary, 36 Seconds That Changed Everything, How the iPhone Learned to Talk, all about the history of accessibility on the iOS platform. And what I did last episode, and what I'm doing again today, is rolling out some extended interviews with people I talked to for the documentary. There were great clips, sound bites in the documentary, but obviously I couldn't play everything that people had to say. So a couple of weeks ago, I had some developers I talked to on. And uh, today I have Jonathan Mosen, who is a well-known accessibility consultant and a reviewer of software and somebody who's worked in the assistive technology industry. And he's very well known in the blindness community and has had uh, Twitter fights with a few people, uh, some of whom are my friends. And uh, Jonathan is both somebody who has a lot of fans, a lot of respect in the community, and somebody who's a lightning rod and and other people um, have had disagreements with him. And the most interesting thing about Jonathan from the iOS accessibility perspective is that he was somebody who was a real skeptic of Apple in general and iOS accessibility specifically. And then he became somebody who really appreciated what Apple had managed to do. And I think he speaks thoughtfully and eloquently about it without being either a fanboy or a knee-jerk critic. And I was really surprised that the conversations I had with him formed sort of an arc within the documentary. I never thought as I was putting it together, oh, well, Jonathan's quotes are going to take us from point A to point B to point C and back again. And that's kind of what they did, which was, as I say, a surprise and very interesting. So a couple of interesting things about Jonathan and I, um, he and I both have written books about iOS accessibility. Mine, iOS Access for All, covers all the accessibility features in iOS. Jonathan's iOS Without the Eye focuses specifically on blindness and voiceover issues. And there's a third book in that category. And I didn't realize until I had booked that third interview that I ended up talking to having all the perspectives of iOS accessibility book writers in my documentary. And the third person I talked to was Anna Dresner, who has an iOS accessibility book that's also focused on blindness issues. And so uh, it's fun to talk a little bit of iOS accessibility book writing shop while we were uh, talking about the uh, history of the platform as well. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jonathan. He'll introduce himself, and then we'll get right to the fun topic of accessibility history on the iOS platform. Let me start off just by having you say your name and just briefly sort of introduce yourself. I'm Jonathan Mosen, and I have been an assistive technology consultant and product manager, and I live in New Zealand. The idea for this documentary comes along, and that's what I'm, I'm calling it. It's, it's going to be probably released in, in podcast form, but basically what I'm trying to do is trace the uh, history of how voiceover came to iOS and how it became so meaningful in people's lives. And, and one reason I really wanted to talk to you is because of your long background in assistive technology. You were certainly not a, uh, a native Mac user, maybe even a Mac user at all when voiceover came around. So I guess I would want you to place yourself back in, in 2009 or a little before uh, voiceover came to iOS. Tell me the technology you were using, what you were recommending to blind people, what was the sort of state of the art, so to speak? I'd been using Symbian smartphones, the, the Nokia range, since about 2002 or 2003. So just before the iPhone was released, I was a pretty proficient Symbian user, and I was using it to do my email, to read Daisy books, to do text messaging, podcasting. It was my one device. I didn't have... Victor Streams or anything like that. I use my Nokia phones extensively. Oh, and also there was the KNFB reader 
on there. So in the mobile space, really, I was pretty happy with the accessibility that we had at that time. Um, in the United States, the Nokia phones hadn't taken off in the same way. There wasn't really the same established smartphone culture there, except for BlackBerry. And BlackBerry had kind of left blind people out in the cold. And in the US, people had to pay extra for the uh, screen reader on the, the Nokia phones. Was that the case in New Zealand too? Yes, it was. There wasn't funding available for talks or mobile speak. And I suppose at the time I kind of thought, well, that's just the way of the world that you have a third party screen reader that you put on these devices. Obviously, installing it on the device could be a bit of a mission. And it did take a high degree of tech savviness to get that done. But the flip side was you could reach the people who made these screen readers. I was on sort of first name basis with the developers of both Talks and Mobile Speak, and I could write to them and let them know about a bug or a feature that I felt was lacking. And quite often it would quickly get impl implemented. So that was a good thing. And you didn't feel, not obviously knowing what the iPhone and other smartphones could do later, you didn't feel as if you were missing important features given what phones of the day could do? I personally wasn't missing anything that I wanted at the time, bearing in mind that since there were no blindness apps for the phone at that stage, we couldn't really predict what was ahead. So I was concerned, though, about the drift that I was seeing. It was very clear to me that market share was moving very quickly to the iPhone and everybody was talking about iPhone. And I remember picking up a friend's iPhone and, and feeling this blank piece of glass, essentially, with just a, a button on the bottom of the glass thinking, man, we are going to be locked out of this thing. And it's a real concern. So I was slightly resentful, I think, of the iPhone and the fact that Apple hadn't made any accessibility plans for it public. Did you have any sense about whether Apple was planning to do that or did you have any feeling about whether they might be likely to? In other words, there are some people I think that were just completely skeptical that Apple would ever take accessibility into account and there are others who, because they had had good experiences with voiceover on the Mac, were more like, oh, they'll get around to it. Well, that's a complicated question because I think we have to put voiceover on the Mac into some sort of context. And that context is that there was a screen reader for the Mac that was a third-party screen reader, and that was Outspoken. And when Outspoken bit the dust, Apple approached Freedom Scientific and said, hey, guys, why don't you develop JAWS for Mac? And Freedom Scientific said, there's not enough blind people using Mac, and we don't see it as a good use of our resources. And so Freedom Scientific backed out of that opportunity. Apple didn't develop voiceover for Mac out of the goodness of their hearts. They developed voiceover for Mac because if they didn't, they were going to be in serious trouble with their key market, which was education. If the Mac was not accessible in education, then universities would have faced numerous lawsuits that would have required those universities to stop buying it. So voiceover was created you know, I'm sure that people feel good about the fact that it was created, but it was created as an existential necessity to keep the Mac viable in their primary market, which was education. Now, also at that time, we had the iTunes lawsuits that was coming from the NFB of Massachusetts, as I recall, for exactly the same reasons that iTunes U was being rolled out to campuses. And this was perceived as a really good fit for Apple 
in the context of how many Macs there were in education. Trouble was iTunes U and iTunes in general was not accessible. And Brian Hartgen on the Windows side had put together a, a set of JAWS scripts and he was charging for that understandably because there was a lot of intellectual property involved in that work. But you had to buy those to really make iTunes sing and dance on the Windows side. And, you know, Windows is the majority operating system by a long way compared with Mac. So these things happen because of a pure business decision. Um, the, 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 the market failed, but regulation worked in causing Apple to have to think about these things. And it did occur to me that the same may well have to happen for iPhone as iPhone gained prominence and we found iPhone and, and iOS apps being used in more and more places that impacted us. But I was curious as to how Apple was going to pull it off. And they absolutely did hit it out of the park when they did. So when... It was announced in 2009, and I, I, I always I tell people this because 10 years is a long time, and sometimes people don't have a specific memory or, or weren't paying that much attention, but WWDC that year, Phil Schiller got up at the end of a very long presentation where they announced the iPhone 3GS, and after he had introduced the Compass app, he said, and we've added some accessibility features, and he spent 36 seconds describing them. They were voiceover and mono audio, and I believe Zoom he mentioned, and he just showed a setting screen. And then he went on to something else, which happened to be Nike support. And so in retrospect, and I, I was around at that time, and I looked back, and there's all sorts of archival material, and a lot of people got it immediately. But if you just look at that record, I wouldn't be surprised if there were people who kind of missed it or weren't sure how accessible the phone was. Do you have any memory of what your take was when the accessibility features were added to iOS, iPhone 3GS and iPhone OS 3.0? Yeah, I do remember that pretty well, actually. And I remember mention of voiceover. And my first thought was, this is really interesting. I wonder whether you have to use a Bluetooth keyboard in order to engage with this touchscreen, because I think it's fair to say Apple just completely changed the game when it came to our perceptions of touchscreens. But I was also struck by the brevity of comments. And knowing Apple and the way they love to hype, you know, this is the Steve Jobs era, nobody hyped stuff like Apple could. And the fact that voiceover was just mentioned in that fleeting way gave me cause for concern. And one of the things I was really worried about at the time was, is this 3GS version of voiceover just going to sit there and kind of languish for years and years and years to come so that they can go to purchases and government entities who might be concerned and say, yeah, we've got a screen reader. We introduced it in 2009 and it would essentially be the same code. So the glibness with which they announced voiceover gave me cause for real concern that that might be their game plan. How quickly did you get a look at it yourself? Um, quite quickly, actually. I think the first time I saw an iPhone was at uh, Site Village in July of that year. And no, actually, it may have been at the conventions that year. I was at uh, NFB or ACB or one of those. So I think I saw the iPhone there. So it was pretty quick. There was a gap between when it was available in the States and when it was released in New Zealand. And of course, I also heard, I think the first podcast I heard demonstrating the iPhone was Shane Jackson's podcast. And he'd gone out and he'd bought a, uh, an iPhone. And I listened to that just to make sure that I understood uh, the, the paradigm, and I also read what user guide material there was as well. 
And what was your take on it at that point? Did you feel like your concerns were a little bit alleviated or did you wait until you could see it yourself? Or what do you think your, your thoughts were then? My take was that it was an ingenious way of providing navigation to a touchscreen. The idea that you could tap something and, and know where you were on and then confirm that that was the thing you wanted to execute on was just so simple, but no one had done it before, you know? And, and sometimes you see a user interface and you think, why the heck didn't I think of that? It was really brilliant, but it didn't alleviate my concerns. And the thing about Apple stuff is that some people really are deeply entrenched in the cult. And if you dare to criticize or, or, or say something that is remotely objective, um, sometimes people treat you like you are some sort of terrible blind heretic. But what other people think has never stopped me from saying what <laughs> I think. And so I said uh, in, a, in a post somewhere, look, this is really good. Hats off to Apple for doing this. But let's bear in mind what we don't have and compare it with other solutions that are available today. We don't have any Bluetooth keyboard support. So while you can certainly hunt and pick, and remember in the original version of iOS, there was just the double tap method to uh, right. enter text. Yep. Right. So while you could do that, you are not going to have the same efficiency that you might have with, say, T9, if you really got familiar with that on a Nokia phone. And I had. I mean, I could write quite lengthy emails at speed with um, my Nokia phone in those days. So I said at the moment, the input method doesn't cut it. I also pointed out that there was no Bluetooth keyboard support at that time. That didn't come until iOS 4. There was no Braille support either, and Braille support was very mature in uh, Symbian and also Windows Mobile, actually. And so I was making the point that, you know, this is ingenious, this is inventive, but we shouldn't somehow think that we've reached some sort of nirvana yet. And I was still, I still didn't know. I still had this nagging doubt in the back of my mind. Are we going to be looking at exactly this same code, you know, three, four years from now? And clearly that is not what happened. And Apple deserves considerable respect for this. And I think that trust and confidence should be earned. And over the years, while there have been bugs and glitches uh, where voiceover is concerned, they have certainly earned my trust and my confidence. I think they, they undisputedly provide the best mobile accessibility experience by a long way. Android's not even close. Was there a point at which they won you over? And I'm, not, I'm specifically not saying when did you get an iPhone, because as somebody who's reviewing products, I would, I would assume that you might get such a thing before you yeah. actually decided to make it your own phone. But was there a point at which they won you over? Yes, I think actually iOS 4 was the point that I thought, you know, Apple is quite serious about this because that I think is when we got the Bluetooth keyboards. I think we got Braille display in that release. And I believe we then got the touch typing method. Um, it's, it's hard to kind of remember when everything came along, but that I believe all of right. that. I've, yeah, I think yeah. all of that was an iOS 4. And um, when they did that, what that said to me was this kind of feature set must clearly be because they're listening to what users said they wanted because these are just really obvious things. And at that point, I did think, all right, um, you know, uh, my, my skepticism was perhaps not warranted. This is evolving nicely. And it was at that point when iOS 4 came out that I made an iPhone my primary device. What about apps? So even people who were super early adopters tell stories about downloading third-party apps or just really being amazed at, at the things that apps added to their tool chest, so to speak. So did you have a sense of how important 
apps were to the iPhone experience early on? Yeah, I thought the apps were really cool. And I remember using things like OOTunes pretty early. There was VizWiz, which a lot of people seem to have forgotten about, um, which was this, the first that I'm aware of, kind of crowdsourcing idea where you could take a picture yeah. of something and have people tell you what the picture was of or, or answer questions for you. And that was pretty neat. And, um, oh, gosh, what else did I use? Uh, there was Blind Square. There were Twitter apps. There was a thing called Boxcar that has long been forgotten that would send push notifications to you about all sorts of things, social media, email, all kinds of things like that. And so I I used to love it. I would try all kinds of apps. Oh, Haytel was another big one in the early days. Oh, yeah. It's still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just the idea that we could all talk to one another by using Haytel, I thought that was just nifty. So yeah, yeah, it was a it was an exciting world of apps. And that actually does bring up for me one of the things that I was also skeptical about. I wasn't sure how many third party apps would end up being accessible. So Apple did a pretty good job in iOS three of uh making their own offerings accessible. But I wondered how much would be exposed to third party APIs, how easy would it be? Would developers decide that it was too tough. That was also a concern that proved misplaced because uh, when I, you know, sometimes you would just download an iPhone app and you'd find that it was accessible without the developer even realizing that it was. And then you'd write to the developer and you'd say, thank you for you for making your app accessible. And they tell, we didn't know it was how cool that blind people are using it. I mean, there were certainly inaccessible apps, my memory is that even when that was the case, they were initially cheap. There were a lot of apps for a dollar. And I mean, I don't know, did you run into apps that were inaccessible that you were really disappointed about that you wanted to use that you couldn't? Yeah. And then I I quickly realized that it was just too much hassle to try and get refunded. And this is one thing (laughs) that has always sort of irked me about the Apple App Store experience is that the only thing you can really do other than look at communities and social media is if you think an app would benefit you, you download it. And if you find that it's completely inaccessible, I guess you've got the choice of either deleting it and moving on. You could contact the developer and see if they care. Uh, And often they do. I think that's one of the really cool things about particularly smaller app developers in the iOS community, or you can go through the convoluted refund process, but it's, it is a bit unfortunate that there's not an easier way. Right, but you never found yourself really feeling that you had missed out on a a hot app or an app that did something that you wanted to do? No, not really. You see, this is the really cool thing about iOS, actually, compared to, say, the Symbian days. I can remember being on Twitter and other forums, and I would ask a question like, is there a Twitter app which works well with talks? And when we got to iOS, it wasn't that long before we were saying, which accessible Twitter app do you prefer that works with iOS? Usually, if there is an inaccessible app, there are at least one or two that do the same thing. And that's a really amazing thing. What are your thoughts about how the iPhone and I guess iPad later on uh, replaced or changed the relationship of blind people with uh, purpose-built assistive technology devices? I think it's taken a little longer than it should have for many of us who really rely on technology to be productive, to feel that we can leave our laptops at home, Um, particularly when it comes to formatting documents and querying the font under the the character and, and working out exactly what a document looks like. I think iOS 
has fallen short compared with all the other innovations that have been introduced over the years. Now it looks like third-party developers are taking that into their own hands to some extent and providing their own voiceover feedback so they can query whether voiceover is running or not. And if it is, they'll provide additional information for you about the way a document is formatted. And um, I mean, that's great. Any powerful technology that can be put into the hands of more people is a positive thing. I must say, though, that it can be quite difficult to have dialogue with Apple. One of the things I really liked about uh, the Android experience is that you can get on an email list. And if you have a problem or a question, a concern about something to do with Android, you can post it and somebody fairly influential in the Google team will answer you. And you can have a dialogue with them and they'll say, yeah, that's a good point. We'll put it in the next release or whatever. Uh, Apple has never really been big on that kind of engagement for a very short time. They were turning up at NFB conventions and CSUN and having some open dialogue. And then I think they decided not to. And so you, it's a bit hit and miss. Sometimes you can write in and get someone's attention who can really make a difference. A lot of the time it just goes into the big bucket and maybe if you make a good enough suggestion, it will turn up in a future release. And I guess the only point that people might make to that is that that's not just accessibility where that's the case. It's unfortunate that it's true in accessibility, but would, would you agree that it's kind of an Apple-wide tendency? Yes, it's a yeah. cultural thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that dates back to the Steve Jobs era where Steve Jobs has always sort of said it's, it's not the customer's job to tell us uh, what we should do, we have to convince the customer that this is what they want. <laughs> and right. so that's that's kind of an Apple mindset thing. So I respect, I accept that we're not singled out in any way. <laughs> it's it's an Apple it's an Apple cultural thing. Right. To be fair, I guess like assistive technology users have been used to whether it was Google or whether it was people that were building assistive assistive technology from scratch, people have been used to being able to get in contact with the companies and say, hey, this is my issue, whether it's a support issue or whether it's a feature suggestion. And so dealing with Apple is, is pretty different than that. Yes, it is. And I, I, I understand why it is, but it is a kind of a shame in some ways. I mean, I know that I've been involved in the leadership teams of a couple of pretty big assistive technology companies, and I get a lot of email from people who ping me because they know where I am and how to get hold of me. And they tell me about a concern they have either with something the product should do better or, or some customer service issue. And they know I'll follow up. Now, every so often I can write to someone like Phil Schiller or something like that, and they do answer. And I also know that uh, when I was blogging a lot about Apple things, I can see you know, quite a few Cupertino IP addresses. Sure. So, you know, uh, I know that they, they read and that's why I have, um, when I have been blogging on Apple things, I, I'm not a fanboy and I have been critical from time to time, but I've always tried to be constructively critical. Um, it doesn't behoove any of us to be, to be bashing of a company, but nor should we be um, docile either. And, and, and accepting of everything we get. And there have been times when I felt that quality control has slipped and I've made that point. And I, I believe I have been heard even indirectly when there's been no dialogue. So what do you think the impact of uh, I, the iPhone, iOS has been on assistive technology? I guess I mean from the customer point of view. In other words, are people having to buy fewer devices for assistive technology needs because they have iPhones? Has, has it changed the assistive technology landscape for people? 
To some extent it has, but it hasn't changed as much as I would have personally expected. For example, clearly hardly anybody's buying standalone GPS devices anymore, although a few people do. But for most people, I think GPS, uh, there are just so many apps, quite a few of them free, and you've got the GPS receiver right in the phone. It's probably more convenient if you need to to buy an extended battery than a complete standalone dedicated blindness device. I've been really fascinated to see how well the Victor Reader Stream has done in the context of the Apple market. Even before the iPhone, I was using Symbian to read all my Daisy books. Uh, to be fair, here in New Zealand, they weren't encrypted, whereas in the United States, you've got BARD, which uses mm-hmm. encryption. But I was using it as my Daisy player and MP3 player and all that kind of, I had my music on there. Um, but even now, in 2019, 10 years after the iPhone, it seems to me like uh, the Victor Reader Stream is thriving and that people still prefer, and a good number prefer still, to read their talking books on a dedicated device. I don't fully understand why, but when I talk to people about that, they say they like the physical buttons, they don't want to drain their battery too quickly. Um, but for some of us, the iPhone is the only device we take with us. It's certainly very often... Uh, the only device I take other than, say, a Bluetooth keyboard for serious work and a Braille display, but I can go for days without touching a Windows machine. Several people I've talked to, and this is unbidden because I'm a low vision person, so for this, this was a big deal, but I was surprised that it was a big deal for people in the blindness community. When iOS 7 came out and Apple changed so much of the visual interface and made it really difficult from a low vision point of view, and then they had to do a release that uh, corrected some of that. I've, I've had several, as I say, blind people just tell me without my asking that iOS 7 seemed to mark a turning point both in a negative and then eventually in a, in a positive way for iOS. Does, does, that, strike, does that ring true to you? <laughs> yeah, iOS 7 was the first uh, book in my iOS without the iSeries. And, and, and <laughs> Mine so, too. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, was a, it was certainly a turning point for me. Um, I think that's right. I, I think we, we can't, when we, when we celebrate what is something really worthy of celebration, we shouldn't also ignore the fact that over time there have been some really serious quality control issues. And I think it is important that we reflect on the impact that they have had because some of them, I mean, I remember one release of iOS where some people were having trouble even answering a phone call. It wasn't mm-hmm. affecting everybody, but it was affecting a good number of people. And you can be sure that if that had been affecting sighted people, it would have been all over, not just the tech press, but the mainstream press with you know people not being able to take business calls and function probably because their iPhones won't answer the call. We had to wait quite a while before that bug was fixed. And I think that's one of the, one of the risks of being kind of at the bottom of the totem pole when it terms to the when it comes to the priority of bugs and we have had a few issues like that and of course that has resulted in some nfb resolutions over the years which have been controversial in, in some um, parts of the community but yeah i think ios 7 is the time when i do remember thinking whoa this is actually a lot more buggy than it used to be right and they they fixed a lot of that in the point one release if I, as I remember, but it seemed like it did take them a long time to get over that. Yeah. I mean, to give you a contrast, there was one version of iOS that came out that broke, I believe it was LTE support. <laughs> and yeah, it people was, lost uh, their mind. I think that was 8.2 or so, eight, 8 something, if I remember right. That's right. It's, I think it was part of the iOS 8 cycle. And of course, there was a, a feature release within a day 
within hours, I believe, actually fixing that and restoring the LTE functionality. And I suppose the question we have to ask is, what is it reasonable for us to expect? And I understand that there might be a few features where there are some inconveniences relating to the way that iOS works. Um, But if there is a feature that causes the phone's fundamental functions to be difficult to operate, and the answering the call thing is one of those, I would hope that we would be valued in exactly the same way as any other customers, and that a feature with that kind of level of priority would have been fixed within 24 hours of it being um, uh, notified to Apple. The other thing too is, of course, that a lot of blind people do beta test iOS, and they put it through its paces, and some of these bugs are well-reported and well-documented in Apple's bug tracker, and they do get released anyway. Yes, that's I've seen that myself. <laughs> yeah. So you said that you still think Apple is far and away the leader for, I believe you said mobile accessibility specifically, but correct me if mm. I'm wrong. But tell me what you think, how, how you think they're doing. Do you think they are progressing in the way that they should? Are there things that they should be doing? How do you think the future looks for Apple's accessibility on mobile? Um, Apple's a very mature company when it comes to accessibility. I think they're the gold standard in terms of a mainstream company that has provided accessible features and everybody else is playing catch up. That doesn't mean that they should sit on their laurels. And I note that last year, there were really very few new features in the accessibility space in general. I'm not uncomfortable about that because I think it was a time to consolidate and try and fix some bugs. So I'm, I'm pretty relaxed about where Apple is. As a Braille user, um, Braille, Braille is deeply important to me, partly because of productivity, but partly also because I have a hearing impairment and I wear hearing aids. Uh, I could not use Android if I wanted to because the Braille support is so abysmal. And so at the moment, Apple for me is the only viable game in town. Uh, other companies will catch up and it will be up to Apple to be innovative and nimble and come up with something that keeps us there. Um, their devices are getting increasingly expensive. And for a market as price sensitive as this one, you know, people on fixed income, they don't have they don't have a job in many cases. That's a real compelling thing. And they have to think, are the benefits of going to iOS really that worth it anymore when I could buy a device hundreds of dollars cheaper? Yeah, I'm actually I, I'm have been surprised at the number of uh, blind folks who still, you know, buy a new iPhone every year, every two. And it's, you know, it's not my business how they manage to do that, but it's it's given the price increases, it's it's kind of amazing, honestly. And I think that's a real tribute to Apple that yeah. people make big sacrifices to get these iPhones. And that's because it's such a damn brilliant device. I mean, it really is. Um, my iPhone is, is, is my constant companion and I use it to record and produce podcasts. I use it to keep up with my family and friends. I mean, it's just such an integral part of me. So you're still a daily iPhone user. Did you, have you ever, I, I thought I heard, heard or read somewhere that you had switched at some point. I, as you said earlier, I buy technology sometimes because particularly when I was working as a consultant, I need to understand whatever option my client want to work with, particularly when it comes to accessibility. So the last Android device I bought was actually a Galaxy S9. And I took the opportunity to do some tutorial podcasts on that for those who were interested. And uh, I liked it because with the Samsung screen reader, 
they do use multi-touch. And one of the big problems for me with Android is that they do not use multi-touch in their screen reader. The API doesn't provide for it. So you've got to do these angular gestures um, up and right and down and left. Uh, I may well be clueless, but I find them really troublesome. So um, I liked Voice Assistant from Samsung because it was a little bit more familiar and used multi-touch, so you didn't have to do those convoluted gestures. But I still found that I could not be as productive with Android as I could with iOS. So I have one, but it's not my primary device. So as somebody who's written books about iOS from a blindness perspective, what kind of feedback do you get? What do people want to know? What do they find most perplexing? Like, what is, what is the nature of the comments you hear from the people who read your books? If there's one thing that seems to really bother people about iOS and the paradigm, it's the rotor. And I don't... I personally have had never have had no issues with the rotor, and I've tried to find ways over the years to describe how you use the rotor, but a lot of people find it really tricky, and many just don't use the rotor at all. And I think if you don't use the rotor, you, you are quite constrained in terms of what you can do from the touchscreen with your phone. Um, I do get contacted by a lot of people who still are thinking about iPhone, and they just can't get their head around how can a blind person use a touchscreen. It's been a real change, a game changer for, for blind people to have had Apple come up with that fundamental uh, user interface that others have emulated. But there are still people who just can't conceive of it until they try. I can see how people would find the rotor challenging, but at the same time, I actually think that's one of the most innovative things about iOS, that they, that they have all these things that they've stuffed in the rotor that would really be difficult to do without it. Yeah, and you can choose which ones mean something to you. Yeah. So if I, I, if I get all this feedback about the rotor, goodness knows how many emails Apple gets in their accessibility mailbox about it, and I hope they don't change it. Um, maybe there can be more tutorial information or something like that about how to use VoiceOver. But I, I would like to see the same kind of customizability for the keyboard in iOS that they did with Braille last year. Mm -hmm. um, the Braille in iOS is still kind of dodgy. <laughs> it, it breaks from time to time and it can be frustrating. But man, w when you uh, have this ability to assign any keyboard command on your Braille display to a particular function, it's super. It's really powerful. And I'd love to see that come along uh, for Bluetooth keyboards because I think if, if someone's coming from Windows or yeah, not so much Mac, because the Mac equivalents are pretty much in iOS anyway. But if you're coming from a Windows screen reader and you could have a trainer program your keyboard for iOS so that it looked and felt the same, that would just lower the learning curve a little bit as you were getting up to speed. One thing I want to ask you, and this is because it partially informed my desire to do this project, is I have felt for a while, and as somebody who... I spent most of my formative years in, in the tech press, in the mainstream tech press, and then I decided to work on accessibility, and I found it astonishing how little they communicated with one another. And what you were saying about the tech press not really addressing uh, accessibility bugs that were major and that were, you know, would, were showstoppers for us got me thinking about this. And I guess I wonder if you think that it is important or desirable that the mainstream tech press or the tech world generally have more visibility to accessibility or whether you think we're just as well off without them? I'd like to see a day when mainstream technology press 
aren't just going goo goo over the fact that a blind person can use a smartphone at all. It's really hard to right. get past that. Aren't you blind people marvelous face for even using one? And so it is hard to get interest. I'd like to see that change. I would also say that one of the things that I am really proud of when I did main menu on ACB radio was we would do the technology reviews and say, yeah, look at all the cool things you can do with this technology or this new version of a particular software. But we also did some pretty hard hitting current affairs in the blindness sector. You know, when, when freedom scientific was being formed and things like that, uh, we, we got quite a few scoops about internal discussions and debates that were going to affect us as users of assistive technology. And the one thing that really does trouble me is how soft our community is when it comes to good quality uh, investigative journalism on some of these issues that have such a profound impact on our lives. And I tried when I was blogging a lot to fill that gap by trying to put some cogent discussions together, some of them a bit thought provoking, and, and I knew that would stimulate some comment. And when you do that, you get accused of Apple bashing. And I don't think that technology should be treated like a religion or your favorite sports team. Technology is a tool. And today, a particular piece of technology might suit you, but it might, you know, something better might come along tomorrow. And it's not like you're defecting to you know, the Soviet Union or something. If you <laughs> use another piece of technology, it's okay. And I was actually deeply hurt by the lack of support to those of us with hearing impairments that was shown by a lot of the blind community when Apple took the headphone jack away. Because, um, you know, I, I, you'd like to think that if you have a disability yourself, you might just have a tiny bit of empathy for somebody who has a different or a dual disability. And the amount of abuse that I personally got for pointing out the huge implications to hearing aid wearers who use certain types of connectivity for their iPhones of taking the headphone jack away was just astounding. That is unfortunate. Has, has any of that mitigated? Are there now adapters that are functional for people who want to use newer iPhones? Or I mean, there are, but they break and you lose yeah. them, you know? Um, yeah, I, I can't tell you the number of Lightning to 3.5 adapters I've had to purchase. <laughs> <Right>. since. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, how is this progress when I used to have a jack that just did this? And then, of course, you've got to get the adapter so that if you want to give your phone a quick charge, you know, wireless is fine, but it takes a while. So right. if you want to give your phone a quick charge, you've got to have an adapter that lets you plug in something to the headphone jack and charge your phone at the same time. Um, and I, I, I still believe that if the accessibility community had gotten together and, had, and shown a united front and really explained to a mainstream audience the dire implications of that decision, it might have been reversible or at least there might have been um, a device on the market that retained the headphone jack and instead people who had a legitimate need for it, just got pilloried. And it's, it's a sad thing because there are a lot of mainstream consumers of iPhone who are inconvenienced by the lack of a headphone jack too. So that's one we could have won. Any, uh, any final thoughts, the things we haven't covered about the sort of history of uh, voiceover in iOS? No, I, I think, j just to say, I, I think Apple has just done an outstanding job of this. They have changed the way that many other big companies think about assistive technology and inclusion and it's 
something really worthy of celebrating this 10th anniversary. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. And it's most likely going to be one more interview from the 36 Seconds That Changed Everything documentary. Remember that you can keep up with this podcast at Parallel Pods on Twitter. You can also chat with me directly, Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y, over on Twitter. And you can subscribe to this podcast at Relay.fm slash Parallel. And don't forget, you could become a member of the Relay FM network over there as well. You'll be hearing a little bit more about membership as we get into membership month here on Relay. So you have that to look forward to. Anyway, go over there, subscribe to the podcast, tell all your friends to listen to the episodes, follow us on Twitter, do all the things. And I'll be back in two weeks.